Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. All right, well, man, it's been a great week. Obviously, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to add to that. I have no editorializing to do that's going to, you know, make it any clearer than the fact that it was just an incredible week. I honestly cannot imagine, especially after last night, I cannot imagine having not been here uh, this week. So um, praise the Lord for just selfishly what he's done in my life this week already. Um, He has, however, uh, seen fit to have my voice deteriorate progressively through the week. So I don't know. I'll see if I can get through this or not. There's going to be a lot of coughing and uh, my voice kind of shaky, but we'll just kind of get through it. All right. Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two. We're going to go. We're going to go very quickly through this information. I've got um, when I was a kid, probably a terrible. uh, I don't know why this is coming to me, but I used to watch Smokey and the Bandit all the time on cable. My dad didn't know. I probably shouldn't have been doing that. But we got a, as the song went, we got a, a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, so let's do that fast. First Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. When Paul pens these words, he is penning them to what almost all of us would understand to be an, infam- an infamously, if not galactically, carnal church. And if you read these words in the context of the book, it comes after four chapters of repairing or addressing the issue of broken human relationships, specifically human relationships within the context of that local assembly. And that is supernatural. I don't care how much counseling training you've had, how much wisdom you you may have or you may perceive yourself as having. I don't think, apart from the revelation of God's word, anybody would sit down to address the issue of carnality and to address the issue of sexual immorality and to address the issue of even demonic oppression by reverse engineering all of that to the issue of having broken human relationships as the source of your problems. Specifically, not even within the context of what we would think of as family, but as you look at it in Scripture, Paul addresses the primary, the root cause of carnality in your life as unhealthy relationships. You ready? In your local church, in your local assembly, Paul makes that the root of every problem in the Corinthian church. And he has a goal. He brings up the issue of of repairing broken or unhealthy human relationships in your local assembly for the purpose, the grand goal of the epistle of 1 Corinthians, which is to get this Again, infamously, galactically, messed up, carnal, uh, uh, sexually oppressed, licentious, lascivious church 
to be able to get to this point. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all, what? Speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's the goal Paul's trying to get through the course of this epistle, this church, to a place where it is perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. But what's interesting for our purposes this morning is that in order to get there, the first thing that Paul does to get to this goal of unity is to lay the foundation for biblical accountability. Now, I, I employ the phrase biblical accountability in place of spiritual accountability, for instance, because uh, 999 times out of 1,000, all I mean by being spiritual is being biblical, and it's more specific. Anyway, as Paul begins 1 Corinthians 4, he is still talking about the importance of relationships, specifically local church relationships, and even more specifically still, how to heal and prevent divided relationships in your local church. In other words, a spiritual man or woman, which is to say a biblical man or woman, operating in a spiritual church, which is to say a biblical church, must constantly be engaged in biblical accountability. Chapter four, verse one, let a man so what? Account of us. Accountability is the key to having a unified church and having a unified church is the key to you conquering every outcropping of carnality that could become an impediment to your spiritual growth in your spiritual life. But it's not just general accountability. It's accountability to some very specific and even at times somewhat complex things. And in regards to our text, you have to have biblical accountability with respect to each party in order that there may be unity in life and doctrine. So in other words, listen, carnality destroys relationships. That's simple enough, right? And you can take that to the bank. What destroys relationships is carnality. Invariably, owing to relationships deteriorating or owing to the, 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 the dynamic of people operating under the power of the flesh predominantly, as opposed to the power of the spirit, is the cause of relationship deterioration. It should stand to reason then that we cannot have spirit-filled relationships if we are not aware of what the word of God expects of us, accountability, and what we in turn should expect of each other. Hence, unity wrought through reciprocity. Paul shows us here that these expectations fall into two general categories. These categories being ministry roles and doctrinal stewardship. That is to say, if we are going to have genuine relationships with one another, if we are gonna be unified in our assembly, and therefore lay the foundation for the elixir or the antidote to any general outcropping of carnality in our lives. If we're going to do that, we are necessarily going to have to have submission to key duties and solidarity on key doctrines. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 is all about. It is a principle repeated seemingly ad infinitum throughout our canon. 
that relationships cease to function properly when the involved parties fail to either realize or recognize biblical roles in their said relationships. And again, this is given through the model of your job with employer and employee in scripture. It's given through the model of marriage with husband and wife and then parent and child respectively. It is given through the model of the local church assembly itself with pastors and deacons and their symbiont submission and relationship to, uh, to the leaders and to the members and to each other. It's given in the individual relationship that we all share and enjoy with Christ as our head and as our Lord and our interaction with him declaring his worthiness or his worship or his worship. Now Paul understood his role and intended that his role be used as a template for our ministry self-contextualization to wit, telling the Corinthian believers that they needed to think of him as both, look at the text, a minister and a steward. A minister and a steward. And in understanding that that's how Paul identified himself, he wanted you to understand that that was your responsibility as well. Those were your roles. Those were your, there are specific roles and specific doctrines which you are to submit to. And as a minister, you see that that involves, and we don't have time to go through scripture this morning to compare scripture with scripture, but you can do that later as a faithful Berean or whatever to make sure that I'm not a liar, which Romans 3 says that I am anyway, so assume that. Assume I'm lying and find out later I wasn't, I suppose. But you would see that the word minister really has to do with your relationship to people in caring for one another how you relate to people. Sometimes that same word that the King James translators used to translate the word minister is translated servant. It's interesting, by the way, you can, you can take from this what you will, that that word is diakonos, from where we get the word deacon, a servant, a foot washer, which in the context of a local church can be an office. One who ministers to people's needs. But Paul adds another layer to this role. That is to say, as a pastor, he wasn't just a deacon or servant, but he was also a steward, which carries the connotation in Scripture of being the master or a head chief butler of a house. If you're so carnal that you've seen Downton Abbey, I don't watch those kind of shows myself. But then you would understand, you know, that the big dude with the gravelly voice, I mean... That's it. He's, he's the master on, of, of the home on behalf of the actual master of the home. It also carries the connotation of a custodian. A custodian because, you know, they're forever wearing keys to let you know how important they are and all this stuff that, you know, they can get into that you can't, you know. It's a big deal. It takes response. If you're an accountant, if you're a custodian, if you're the master of a house, you've been given a bunch of responsibility and a lot of your responsibility has to do with making sure that people don't mess up the orderliness and the cleanliness of a room or a home. It is just that the word minister in this context translates to our responsibilities to each other for care. But steward has more to do with doctrines, as it turns out. It has to do with a doctrinal responsibility. And very specifically, this doctrinal responsibility is in reference 
to seven specific doctrines, or as they are stated in this text, mysteries. And a mystery specifically defined according to uh, Colossians 1.26 and Ephesians 3.4 and, and like passages. A mystery is a doctrine which although was, of, was technically on paper in the Old Testament, wasn't revealed. It, wasn't, it was only there in an encoded or typological form not to be specifically revealed until the writing of Paul. So it is a doctrinal truth of which people were not aware of until Paul wrote. These are the doctrines, are the mysteries of the church uh, as delivered by Paul, not to be confused, by the way, with the mysteries of the kingdom. And there are seven such doctrines. Now, what are those doctrines? That's a great question, and I would love to go through every one of them. But because of the experience that we all had here uh, this week, all I want to do this morning very quickly is to go over one of those doctrines. Very specifically, uh, the doctrine or the mystery of the body of Christ. And uh, for that, I would like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. And it says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, this is fascinating because what comes before this line, verse 32, is basically an entire chapter on the devotional teaching of marriage. So that's what Paul's laying down in Ephesians 5. He's talking about a, the, the marriage model and the role of a husband and the role of a wife and how the husband is to love the wife and how the wife is supposed to submit to the husband. And it goes through all of this teaching, but then you get to the very end of this teaching on marriage and Paul says, really, although all that's true, just so you know, I've been talking this whole time about Christ and his church. Now, that's kind of tricky. I mean, in a sense, he's basically admitting that he's, he's sort of tricked us. All right? He's wanting you to know that he's played somewhat of a, of a trick on the reader. That is to say, marriage was the devotional truth, but the doctrinal truth of this entire passage is talking about Jesus Christ and his bride. Now, consider for a moment that that is the case and why Paul would have given this revelation in light of passages like, for instance, Ephesians 5.25, which see, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Or verse 29, for no man ever yet, what, hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Or again, verses 30 through 32, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. And here's the big reveal. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, if a man or woman is saved, they are literally a part of Christ's body, spiritually. And since a man's wife is his body, then those who comprise the body of Christ are his bride. 1 Corinthians 6.16. What know ye not that he which is joined into an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now seriously, I want to ask you, 
Because yes, we have the technical or the doctrinal definition of a mystery, which is this like super cool encoded typological, you know, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed kind of a truth. Okay, that's cool. And that's need to know information and that will help you. But there's a devotional or there's a practical way of reckoning a mystery. And that is, is just, just thinking hard to understand through human comprehension. Now, it's easy to understand through the revelation of God's word. But through what the eye can see and through what the ear can hear and through human intellect, these things are hard to deal with. As a matter of fact, through human intellect alone, using that as the rubric or the method of interpretation, these doctrines are indiscernible because you can't explain it. You can't, it's not rational to understand that when a man and a woman come together, they are one flesh. Now, science can talk about, you know, the, the sharing of, uh, of DNA after, you know, uh, being together intimately and, and, and pheromones and chemical bonds. Okay, whatever. And that's interesting reading if you've done that. But that doesn't even begin to skim the surface of the explanation of how two people come together in intimacy and now they're one flesh. And it certainly, certainly cannot come close to explaining how that can be done in a spiritual transaction through faith. There's no explaining that. You want to know why? Because it's mysterious. And that's why it's called a mystery. Now, if pastors would have been faithful to every one of these seven mysteries in the church age, then it would have created an impenetrable bulwark of doctrine through which it would have been impossible for false doctrine to infiltrate local churches. But because they have not been faithful in their dischargements of their doctrinal responsibilities of these mysteries, false doctrine is able and has crept in. And when it comes to this doctrine, this single doctrine corrects three major doctrines right off of the bat. The first of which is the mother of all false doctrines, the teaching that you can be justified by works. A full comprehension of this doctrine alone completely addresses and corrects that problem. It also corrects what I estimate to be, and I have reasons for this that I will not go into this morning. It also corrects the most dangerous, the most insidious, the most damaging of all of false doctrines, even the doctrine that you can lose your salvation, although it is its kissing cousin, is the doctrine that you can lose your salvation. Not that you can earn it, that's, that's the mother of all false doctrines, but the most dangerous one is the teaching that you can lose it for reasons I would love to share with you, but for time constraints, I shall not be able to. I was discipling somebody at a restaurant recently and some, some theologian, you know, self-proclaimed theologian, that's what he called himself. He saw us doing a Bible study, introduced himself as a theologian. What does that even mean? You're a theologian. I'm a philosopher. Why? What makes you a philosopher? You work at the philosophy factory? What does it even mean? I mean, you, does, does he like work a shift at the theology factory? Does he like make theology somewhere? The theologian. What a uh, person. <laughs> and so he then immediately jumps into the explaining to the guy that I'm discipling. 
I won't tell you how this conversation ended, by the way, but, but he, he starts explaining that, listen, because he overheard part of, our, part of our, our deal. And he says that you are not really safe for sure until you get to heaven. I want you to think about that statement. You're not really safe for sure until you get to heaven. So to him and to his theological ilk, Heaven is a place that you have to get to. You see, but to Bible believers, you're not saved to a place. You're saved to a person. So I want you to think about that in light of this mystery. What safer place can there be other than in the body of Christ? Am I safer when I get to heaven than what I was when I was, you know, just in the the body of Christ? You know, that schlubby transitional state to where I'm finally safe? How utterly moronic. How preposterously ignorant and stupid of Scripture do you have to be to make such an asinine assertion? Seriously. You see, listen... If being saved made me a part of the body of Christ, then for God to cast me off, he would have to cast off his own body. Or as Ephesians 5 puts it, hate his own body, which no man yet hath ever done. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't be that what he would have to do if I'm a part of his body? Besides which, if Ephesians 5 is rightly apprehended, then explains that even if I needed to get to heaven... Whatever that means, then to me, at least, the point is moot. For both logically and scripturally, I am already there. This understanding fells two ridiculously uh, damaging heresies at once. That is, losing your salvation and what is known as, sometimes known as, denominational brightism, which is, at its core, the failure to make a distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant. Now listen, if you're safe and you're in heaven, or at least if you're, if you're not safe until you're in heaven, then you're, if you're saved, then you're already safe. Because the Bible teaches that if you're saved, you're already in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, and hath raised, what part of speech is that? That's past tense. And hath raised us up with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places where? In Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're in his body. And if you're in his body, you are where he manifests himself in bodily form. And where, although Jesus is everywhere because he's God, where does he manifest himself in a corporeal state? Where does he do that? He is seated at where? the right hand of the Father. If you are in the body of Christ and you are where Christ's body is, where is Christ's body? It's in heaven. When you got saved, you died spiritually, you were buried spiritually, and then you were raised spiritually with Christ, which means you don't have to die to go to heaven. You're already there. When you die, you're not going to be like, you know, floating up through uh, space. 
you know, and then through a black hole and then you see them shiny gates in the distance and grandma's on the far side banks of Jordan spitting and whittling, you know, waiting. You're there worshiping God right now. Well, you're not a church until you're assembled. Amen. And guess what? You're assembled right now because you're already up there. You say, well, that's kind of weird. It is weird. And through human reason and through human intellect and through human rubrics of understanding that is irreconcilable, but through that being revealed, not by the flesh, but by the spirit through this book, we understand that as simple doctrine. Colossians chapter three and verse one, if ye then be what? What part of speech is that? Risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above. How can I seek those things which are above? Because you're already up there. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Where's the throne of grace? Where's the throne of grace? It's in third heaven. How can you come boldly before the throne of grace? How'd you get beyond the veil, friend? You're already beyond the veil, and that's why you can go. You want to know why? Because I'm already up there. So if I'm not safe until I get to heaven, I guess I already got that worked out, friend. Right? What's that? Friend. I always wish I could. When, it never goes well for me when I, I try and get my black on. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> Ever. Now, listen, friend. The Bible teaches you're up in heaven. You believe that? You're crazy. You're crazy if you believe that. And you're also right. You're also correct. So... I'm asking you again, do you believe that you are where Jesus Christ is, not according to human reason, not according to human wisdom, not according to experience, but by faith in the word of God alone, because that is the only way that you could possibly believe that doctrine. And if you believe it, you'll be a steward of that, and you'll understand that you cannot lose your salvation, and you will as well understand that earthly local assemblies and religious constabularies and man and denominations do not have the ability to prevent you from access to Christ or to heaven or to the throne of grace, that there is no mediation between you and Christ Jesus at all that has been removed. And you'll see those things for what they are. You'll see teaching to the contrary as heresy, and you will see that you have a responsibility to steward those truths even above your desire to worship and fellowship with other so-called Christians. Listen, if you love Jesus Christ, and I mean really love him, if you love Jesus Christ and you're in this room, I want you to raise your hand. Okay. Now listen, you can put him down. You are all crazy. You got, how many people in here? Let's, I don't know, I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at looking at stuff and I, I can't figure it out. Let's say 40 men and 40 women. 
You have 40 men and 40 women in this room all claiming to, on an individual basis, be in love with one man and you've never seen him. You're nuts. And you're also right. And you know why that's so crazy? Because it's mysterious. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery. I'm in a room filled with crazy people. And I didn't need this doctrine to know that. <laughs> now listen, do you, know, do you know what Paul says about the bride of Christ in this age? I want you to look at something. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. See, when you get engaged, you get really paranoid and jealous. I did, because I thought, uh, I'm never going to be able to convince this girl all the way to the, I mean, I'm, she's gonna, some, some better looking dude is going to come along and it's going to be over for me. I just, man, I was jealous of everybody and everything. and she, It would drive Kim crazy. Why? Because I just wanted her for myself so bad and I was just nuts. And Christ said, I feel that way, although without all the paranoid, weird, you know, lack of self-confidence issues that I had. Uh, I, I feel that way about my bride. Why? Because I'm espoused to her because we're not yet married. Okay. Now read Ephesians 5.30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his Father and mother, and, shall, and they shall be what? Be husband and wife. All right, so how does this thing go down? In 2 Corinthians 11, I'm engaged to Christ. And in f chapter 5, verse 30, I'm his wife, and we're already married. And by the way, I can bear children for him. And that's the Great Commission. Well, how do you make sense of that? Which is it? Am I a virgin that is espoused and not yet married, or am I married and giving children and his wife? Yes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. Because it's not revealed by human intellect. It's not revealed by human wisdom. But as I began to compare Scripture with Scripture, and the Spirit of God bears witness to what I'm reading, the truth becomes self-evident. Spiritually, I am joined to him right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7. He that is joined unto the Lord is one, f what, flesh? No, one spirit. So as far as the spirit goes, I am married to him right now. This being possible because Christ's body is a spiritual body. And yet physically the marriage is still in waiting because my physical body down here is separate from Christ's body which is in heaven. And so for that to happen, I can't be born as a son. I'm Christ's son by birth. Well, the reformers say, well, no, you're, you're, you're his son by adoption, and you were predestined to that adoption. I'm not saved by adoption. I'm saved by birth. How were you saved? Were you saved by adoption or birth? Okay, but your body's going to be adopted someday. That's what the resurrection's all about. Romans chapter 8, we groan and wait for the renewing of our body, the adoption of sons to wit the redemption of our body. 
So even though my body is not in Christ's family now because it didn't get saved when I got saved, at the resurrection, he's going to even transform my body the way he once transformed my spirit. And then, even physically, I will be married to Christ, for then I will be able to say that in my flesh I shall see God. So I'm his son by birth, presently. I'm his son by adoption, preterently. I am spiritually married to him now because I have joined his spiritual body in a spirit birth by faith, though I will be physically joined to him in that day and I shall see him as he is. My body will be glorified and I will live together with him in physical union. And in that sense, my marriage is still awaiting Now, if you find all of that interesting, then you're like me. And if you don't, it is only because of my clumsiness and failure to communicate how awesome that it really is. But I don't want to just leave you with the doctrine, and I'm skipping a lot here. I don't want to just leave you with the doctrinal dynamics. Because listen, friend, and don't ever forget this. Do you know what Jesus said when he appealed to men to come unto him for eternal life? Look at, look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were, bidding, that were bidden to a wedding, and they would not come. Now I know the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and it's talking about a physical kingdom, blah, blah. I got it. Cool. But I want you to think about the principle. I want you to think about about the means through which Christ chose consistently throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, to attract men to himself. Here in this passage, like he does in so many other passages, he bids them to a feast, but not just any feast. It is in point of fact a wedding feast. And what is the point of a feast? We just had one last night. What's the point of a feast? It is, listen, there's just no good way to say it. It's gluttony. The point of a feast is that God gives you like a temporary pass on the sin of gluttony. And he says, come and gorge yourself. I'm going to let you gorge yourself. That's how Christ attracted men to himself. When God gives men the gospel, he is forever going on about food and drink and our physical desires as pictures of our spiritual needs. Listen, I think it's important. I think it's important in Revelation 22 when he says, come to me and drink and you'll never thirst again. I think it's important when he tells the woman at the well that that if you drink of me, I'll be a fountain of living waters and you'll never be thirsty again. And he that eateth my bread shall never hunger and he that drinketh of me shall never thirst Never hunger, never thirst. That is the appeal by which God chose consistently to draw men unto himself. On December 21st, as I close, I became 43 years old. Now, I, I know that doesn't make me like the ancient of days. I get it. But what... It does mean, at least to me, is that I'm a lot closer to being an old man now than I am a young man. I have a friend who's like 10 years older than I am, and he just went off the deep end spiritually. 
And everybody said he had a midlife crisis. He's 56. He's going to live to be 112? It's not a midlife crisis. It's a whole life crisis. He just now got the money to finance it, though. And so he did. He financed his whole life crisis. It means I can see where young people are headed because I'm old enough now to understand what they are searching for. And you know what? All of them, just like all of you, are searching for. It doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's honest. They're searching for love and food. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for love and food. Is there anything wrong with that? No way, no how. Christ appealed to men to come unto him on that basis, using their physical desires as the pitcher to draw them to himself. Say, well, then, then what makes that wrong? The issue of seeking out love and food is the issue of where and by what means you seek the satiation. That is really the issue, isn't it? So the Bible says this in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. You're seeking love? Well, guess what? God. He is love. He isn't the distributor of love. He isn't the guy that, you know, supernaturally connects you to some hottie so you can have love. If you just serve him. He isn't loving. He is love. And therefore, anything that is contrary to God is by definition contrary to love, though it be called love. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 8, what does God say? It's, it's weird. Taste of me. Listen, I really don't need to overemphasize the doctrinal considerations of this passage, but I do want to leave you with a devotional reminder. As we go seeking out in the world our love and food, do not go and seek out a twisted, decayed, poisoned, satanic perversion of what God is offering you in a relationship with himself, with his fair and lovely, with his whole and righteous, with his pure and peaceable, with his glorious and majestic self. For at the point that you seek love and food by other means other than Jesus Christ and faith in his word, you at that point become the prodigal son. The prodigal son. I want you to think about that story as we close. Stories told in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 19. The prodigal son thought that he was being kept from his love and food. So he went out into the world to seek it. Did he find it? No, he didn't find it. Do you know when he found his love and food? When he went home. The prodigal son got money when he got home, Luke 15, 22, and they put a ring on his hand. He got his sweet wardrobe when he got home, Luke 15, 22, and put a royal raiment on him. He got his food when he got home, and they, they spread out a, a feast for him, and, and they, 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 they killed the fatted calf. You know what he got when he got home? He got love when he got home as a father ran out to him and, and, and hugged him and, and kissed his neck 
and wept, though he despised his father. And yet it didn't change his relationship with him, did it? Listen, the devil told him that he could find all of that in the world. But that old devil is a thief and a liar, isn't he? Who cometh only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But if you want what God has for you, and you trust him enough to believe his way and his plans are better than yours, then you have to find it at home. And I'm not talking about where your parents live, friend. I'm talking about your real home. Fellowship with a person, Jesus Christ. I'm an old fogey. I like all the new songs. I like the skinny jeans and the handlebar mustaches. And, 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 and Eric... And, and like the jungle stick and the singing and the tambourine and Bustos, you know, with his crazy beard and doing stuff. Looks like, you know, John Brown's raid, Brian Bustos. You know, I like all of that. I think it's awesome. But deep down, you cut me deep enough. You know what I am? I'm just an old school fundy. And I miss some of the old songs. I really do. You know what, what we don't sing anymore? Man, I stick and love this song. Uh, it goes like this. I, I won't sing it. You want me to sing it? All right, here we go. <clears throat> he asked for it. Excuse me. And then I'm, I promise I'm done. Here it is. <clears throat> I'm living on a mountain underneath a cloudless sky. I'm drinking from a fountain that never shall run dry. Oh, yes, I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for what? I am dwelling, though I'm on this planet physically. Where am I dwelling? In Beulah land. It's good enough. Now listen, you know what the devil doesn't want you to realize? He doesn't want you to realize that if you have Christ, you have everything. You say, well, what, what does that have to do with the body of Christ? Listen, friend, if you don't know what it has to do with the body of Christ, man, I hope you figure it out. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.